0: Heavenly Father, we do lift up Trisha to you, Lord, and I just pray, Father God, that, that Lord, you would, even in these dire circumstances, Father, that there'd be an opportunity for her to hear yet one more time about your love for her. And Father, that her heart would be softened to receive from you, Lord, just that gift of salvation. And Father, I pray for Bill and Michelle, is there a way that you would comfort them and strengthen them as well, Lord, and give them the peace that surpasses all understanding, not the peace that comes from understanding. Lord, I also pray for our time in the Word tonight, you truly would be our teacher. Father, may each one of us just be receptive and ready for what you want to minister to each one of our hearts. So Father, we love you and we praise you, Lord, and we just ask that you would move in a mighty and a powerful way among us. In Jesus' name we pray, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Now last week we looked at the seven feasts in Leviticus chapter 23, and we talked about how it was the clear picture of prophecy. How each one of the feasts in the Old Testament was pointing to a coming event to them. 1,500 years before Christ came to earth, the first four feasts, and I'm going to give you a little quiz here to see who's paying attention last week. The first four feasts were all prophetic truths that were fulfilled by Christ when He came to earth. The first feast was Passover. What did Passover point to? A cross. Very good. And after the, the... Feast of Passover, again, a picture of the cross when they were delivered out of the bondage in Egypt. That if the, they had the blood on the doorpost, on the mantle, at the foot of the door, it was a perfect picture of the cross, and the angel of death would pass over. And it's a picture of how, when we give our lives to Jesus Christ and we allow Him to take that place for us on the cross, that we too will escape the eternal death. Then the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a picture of Christ in the tomb. The Feast of First Fruits was a picture of what? The resurrection. Pentecost, if you've been here on Sunday, you should still know this answer, was a picture of what? Holy Spirit coming upon the church and the birth of the church. Then you saw in the feast that there was about a six-month lapse of time between those first four feasts and the last three. And the last three feasts are things that are yet to be fulfilled. They're things that are pointing to when Christ comes back. And the first of those feasts was called the Feast of Trumpets. And that points to what? Rapture of the church. When Christ is going to... Call us up and we're going to be out of here. If you guys have been paying any attention to those books, Left Behind series, not the most scripturally accurate things in the world, but the reality is that when the Lord, when the time is up, He's going to snatch the church out of here. And there's going to be seven years of tribulation on this earth like the world has never seen. We think there's wicked and evil now. Imagine taking the Holy Spirit out of this place. It's going to be unreal. Praise God we're not going to be here. Then at the end of that seven year period, there will be a millennial kingdom, a thousand year reign. Now, the Day of Atonement was the next feast, and it was a picture of the Tribulation, and during that time, many of the, the Jews will come to know Christ. And then lastly, the Feast of Tabernacles. So Passover points to the cross. Unleavened bread points to the tomb. The Feast of Firstfruits points to the resurrection. Pentecost points to the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Feast of Trumpets pointed to the rapture. The uh, Day of Atonement pointed to the Tribulation. And lastly, the Feast of Tabernacles pointed to the Millennial Kingdom. Now, in chapter 23... We looked at special days of rejoicing, when they were looking back and commemorating what God had already done, and at the same time, looking forward to prophetic truth. Next week, we're going to look at special years of refreshing, the year of jubilee. Some of you have heard of that, or sabbatical years. But tonight, in between those two chapters, we look at responsibilities that God gives to His people. The first one is, is there to bring and prepare the holy oil, and we'll talk about the significance of that. They're also to provide the holy bread, and then lastly, they're to protect the holy name of our Savior. As God's people today, every one of us in this room, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you've been justified. And the word justified means, easy way to remember it, just as if you never sinned. Justified. And you know what? You're born again, you're going to heaven, you're a new creation in Christ, but God's not through with you. And as we talked about on Sunday, Christianity's not a parking lot, it's a launching pad. Amen. Christ didn't save you to park you in a garage somewhere and leave you there until he comes back. He saved you that he might use you for his kingdom. And so we're going to see tonight part of that sanctification process, how God is setting us apart and using us for his glory. He saved us. We're going to heaven, that's for sure. Our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We're ha <laughs> heaven bound, as DC Talk would say, and we have that promise, but God's not through with us. He wants to continue that sanctification process until we are ultimately glorified when we get to heaven. So... We're to live holy and sanctified lives, sanctified in our worship, in our giving, and in our magnifying of His name. So let's take a look, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 24, at first the preparing of the holy oil. Now these are things that we saw all the way back in Exodus, and we see again here tonight, but we're going to see just the application that comes from each one of them. Let's begin in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring to you pure oil of pressed olives for the light, to make the lamps burn continually. Now those of you here in Exodus, you'll remember that in the tabernacle being built, that there were certain furnishings inside the holy place. And one of them was called the golden lampstand. It's called, the, the Jews called it a menorah today. That's kind of their symbol for Judaism. It had seven stems in it which is the number of completeness or perfection and the golden lampstand is a picture of whom of jesus christ because he is the light of the world those of you here remember that so they were the, the priest one of his jobs was to make sure that that lamp never went out it was to never cease burning and what they used was oil and they would take this oil and put it in the lamp And the priest's job was to make sure the wick stayed lit, and to make sure the oil remained in the lamp, that the light would never go out. A picture again, that Jesus Christ is the light of the world, a light that will never be extinguished, amen? He always has been, he always will be God, and nobody can can turn down or turn out that light. So this was providing light for the priest, and again, a picture of Jesus Christ being the light of the world. In John chapter 8. Jesus spoke and said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. We also know the Bible says that in Matthew chapter 5, that you and I are the light of the world too. He's the light of the world, and we are lights of the world. The Bible says that we're not to take our light and hide it under a bushel. Amen? We're supposed to set it out so that everybody can see it. And so, he is the light of the world, and this golden lampstand, the priest was the one to make sure that light stayed lit. And that it never went out. And so, the people had a part in that. And what part did they play? And it's interesting also that that's not the last time we see lampstands, by the way. Where else do we see them? In the book of Revelation. It says that Jesus walks among the seven golden lampstands. And those golden lampstands are pictures of what? The church. And so, that light must stay lit, a picture of Christ being the light of the world, but also a picture of us as the church. That we too must continue to be glowing in the dark. And how do we do that? What is it that fuels that lamp? What is it that the people were supposed to bring? They were not to come empty handed. And you and I are not to come to church and to serve God empty handed. God desires to use us for his glory. He saved us and he gave us a gift at salvation. What gift did he give you? What's the promise that you know that you're his? What did he put inside of you? The Holy Spirit. And now the Spirit of the living God lives inside of you. It's a down payment on heaven. He has sealed you. He's stamped you. He's redeemed you. He says, this one's mine. Belongs to me. And so we see here that they too were supposed to bring this oil, which is a type or a picture of the Holy Spirit. But look what happened to the oil before they brought it. They had to bring pure oil. Again, a picture of the Holy Spirit, who's God and holy and perfect, of pressed olives for the light. When you go back to the Exodus Uh, portion of this, the way they crushed these olives is they beat them with rods. And the more they beat them and the more they crushed them, the more pure they became. And I believe this is a clear picture for all of us, that the more difficulties and trials and struggles that we go through, and the more times that we have to let go of ourselves and stop trusting in our flesh and hang on to the Lord, the more like Him we're going to be. Amen? The more they were pressed, the more they were crushed, the more they were broken, A man or a woman is the only thing that becomes more valuable when broken. Everything else when broken becomes less valuable. But you and I, when we become broken, that's when God can use us. When we're doing things in our will, in our flesh, and in our own ability, we're of little or no value to the kingdom of God. It's interesting that it says that Jesus is the light of the world, but remember that the Holy Spirit came upon Him at the beginning of His ministry. Where did that happen? At His baptism. You guys remember that? Jordan River? He he came up out and what descended upon Him like a dove? Holy Spirit. And so even at the beginning of His ministry, we see that Jesus Christ, though fully God, that the Holy Spirit was upon Him. A picture of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as the sky opened up and He said, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Well, they were to bring the oil because that oil was, was the thing that kept that light lit. And that oil is the thing that will keep the church lit. Amen? Without the Holy Spirit... We will not be light to a lost and a dying world. We will not be light in the darkness if we are not filled with the Spirit of the living God. We can have all the programs we want. We can try to do all the different things we, in our own ability and in our flesh. But if we are not empowered by the Spirit of the living God, it will come to nothing. We too must be filled with the Holy Spirit. And again, the more beaten and the more pressed and the more struggles that we go through in life, the more we call out and cry out to Him. Now when they came, it said they had to bring this oil. And I believe this is a picture that when we come to church, God wants us to bring the gifts that we have and use them for His kingdom. God didn't, and you've heard me say this many times, God did not save us so that we could be pew potatoes. Amen? He didn't save us so we could be the biggest and fattest sheep around. The Dead Sea is dead because it has an inlet and no outlet. Christians are dead in their walk because so often they get fed, but they don't ever minister to anybody else. They're not making disciples. They're not fulfilling the Great Commission. God saved you to use you. He loves you guys so much and He's given you special gifts that He wants you to use here at Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz. Here's the reality, you guys, if you haven't figured this out already. There are gifts that you have that I don't have. There are gifts that you have that the other pastors in this church don't have. For some of you, there are gifts that you have that nobody else in this building has. And God's given them to you and brought you to this place that you might use them for His glory. And if you're not here and you're not using the gifts God's given you, then there's a big hole in our church. There's something missing. And God wants to use every single one of us. So they were to come and they were to bring that oil, that picture of the Holy Spirit. You know what? Revival doesn't come from a Spirit-filled pastor. Revival comes from a Spirit-filled church. Amen? It's when every one of us is so in love with the Lord and we're filled with the Spirit of the living God that we become contagious to the world around us. We start seeing with the Lord's eyes. We start having a burden for the lost. And you know what? That's what's happening here. You've been coming on Sundays. You've been coming here for six months. You've seen our church pretty much double in size. Why is that happening? Because you guys are falling in love with Jesus Christ and you're becoming contagious. Amen? You love the Lord, you're going to let everybody else know it. And that's what's happened. And they're to bring that oil, just as you and I are to bring those gifts and use them for God's glory. Verse 3 and 4. Outside the veil of the testimony... In the tabernacle of meeting, Aaron shall be in charge of it from evening until morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. He shall be in charge of the lamps of pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. Now, it's interesting that the pastor or the priest in this case was to make sure that the flame never went out. He was to never, ever let the fire or the flame go out. And it's interesting that later we see in the Bible that a lamp is also a typology of the word. The Bible says, thy word is a what? A lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And the pastor, or the priest in this case, but the pastor's job was to make sure that the fire never went out. That never, they weren't lighting anything else to, to illuminate it, but it was being, that golden lampstand remained lit, and that's what God has called me to do: is to make sure that the word of God never ceases to be taught from this place. Amen. And I promise you, before Almighty God, this not going to change. It's faith comes by hearing, and hearing by word of God, not the words of Dave. Amen. I don't know what people teach that don't teach the Bible. This is the greatest book ever written. Amen. Sixty-six books written by 40 authors on three continents and three languages over 1,500 years with one central theme and no contradictions. And how is that possible? Because God wrote it. Amen? And you know what? People got, I, I got enough time studying this one right here to be tooling around in anything else that a man wrote. God's Word is sufficient for everything that we need. And so the pastor or the priest's job is to make sure that that light never went out and that the oil was brought by the people A picture again of the Holy Spirit, and you bringing the gifts that God's given you. And the pastor's job or the priest's job in this case was to make sure that the Word of God, that light, stayed lit and that it never ever went out. The illumination was dependent upon the congregation bringing their gift. If they didn't bring it, then the light would go out. But Jesus again is a is a type of the Word, or is the Word, just as the lamp is a type of the Word, ministering the Word of God, not the opinions of men. Again, the priest was to prepare the lampstand. The people were to bring the oil. The pastor was to deliver the Word and it could only happen and only be received by you if you come in with the Holy Spirit in your life. Why is it you can share your faith with some people and they just don't get it? Is the Gospel difficult to understand? No way. You are a sinner in need of a Savior. God so loved you He sent His Son to die in your place so you might have eternal life. He took all your sin upon Himself he proved himself to be God. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He's now in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for you. And he's coming back to take those home who cry out and make him Savior. Is that hard to understand? But the sad part is that without the spirit of the living God within us, we cannot understand God's word. And that's why it says the congregation came and brought the oil. that the spirit within them. And the pastor was the one that kept the lamp lit and delivered to them the word of God. When you come to church, come not only to receive, though that's important, but also come to minister to others, to give the gifts that God's given you, to be a conduit for the Holy Spirit. Again, you have gifts that other people here don't have. So the first responsibility was preparing of the holy oil. And again, bringing those gifts, bringing them here, being filled with the Spirit of the living God, showing up at church and being ready for God not only to minister to you, but to minister through you. You know what I love? I love on Sunday morning when I look out and I see people praying with each other all over this place. An hour and a half after church is over, people are still hanging out, ministering to each other. That's what a family should do. Amen? That's what a church is all about. Holding up each other's hands, encouraging each other in our walk. Number two, after preparing the holy oil, they were to provide the holy bread. They were to bring the bread along with the oil. Look at verse five. And you shall take the fine flour and bake twelve cakes with it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. You shall set them in two rows, six in a row, on a pure gold table before the Lord. Well, if you were here again, we were teaching through Exodus. There are 12 loaves. Each loaf represents what? One of the tribes of Israel. And it was put on what was called the table of showbread, and it was in the presence of God all the time. It was right across. The golden lampstand was here, and the table of showbread was here. The holy of holies was right here, with the altar of incense in front of it. And they were in the presence of God. God's presence continually. It was a picture that God was watching over the 12 tribes of Israel. That He never took His eyes off of them. Do you know that God never takes His eyes off of you? Do you know that He loves you so much that He's numbered the hairs in your head? Do you know that you are His treasured possession? You know how you determine the value of something? What somebody's willing to pay for it. What was paid for you? Almighty God came to earth and died that you might have eternal life. We have a loving and a gracious and a merciful God. And this table of showbread pictures three things to me. Number one, the fact that we need to be in God's presence, in a place of fellowship, in a place of intimacy with Him as well. Gathering together as the church, but also having that intimate time with Him. Don't answer, but just think to yourself, when was the last time you spent time alone with the Lord? And I don't mean a minute and a half. When was the last time you spent a half an hour or 45 minutes just you and the Lord? In prayer, in the Word, not with the radio or the TV on, you know, not distracted by anything else, but just hanging out with Him. This table of showbread is a picture of the fact of being in the presence of Almighty God, being in fellowship with other believers, but also being near and dear to Him. Pictures that fellowship that we are to have. Verse 7, And you shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath you shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. So they brought this bread, and it was, also, it was not only a picture of, of a time of fellowship and a time of intimacy with God, but it's also a picture of prayer. Frankincense was what? Does anybody remember? It's like a perfume. It was a resin that they would burn. And they burned it. It had a sweet aroma. And it was a gift that was given to Jesus at His birth. You guys remember that? Gold and frankincense and myrrh. And this bread with frankincense on it that was the sweet aroma and presence of Almighty God, who's the bread of life? Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, as our sacrifice, was a sweet aroma to the Father in that He restored sinful man back to holy God. And so this table of showbread was a picture of, of of fellowship, a picture of intimacy, but it was also a picture of prayer, because the frankincense was poured out upon it, and the fact that Jesus is the manna, the bread of life that came down from heaven, to minister to. Also, what did they use the bread of life for? After they brought the bread in, okay, and they gave it, and it was set on that table, and it sat there for a week. And during that week, it was a picture of being in God's presence, being in in fellowship with Him, being under His watchful eye, but at the end of those seven days, what did they do with the bread? The priest ate it. That's a picture of the fact that God desires that He would use us to be a source of provision for those who serve in ministry. The people brought the bread, it was set there, and then when they were done, that bread was then taken, and that's how the priest survived, that the priest might full-time serve in the temple. And that doesn't happen if the church doesn't give. Amen? Now, as you know, I'm very blessed that for the first time in my life, I'm actually full-time at this church since March. After, I don't know, 16, 17 years of doing both, of working full-time and also being here at, the, uh, being here at this church or being a, a youth pastor in San Jose or many of the other things that God has allowed me to do. But what I wanted to share with you is this, is that, you know, God is, when when this happens, when we're allowed to come and be here full time, when you're faithful to give, it blesses so many people. God wants you to give so that you will be blessed. And when you give, you never give because a man, you know, pushes you into it. You don't give because you feel like someone's twisting your arm. And by the way, if you can't give, come anyway. Amen? The Lord loves you. He wants to see you. He doesn't need your money. Amen? But when you come, you give out of love for him, not because someone's guilted you into it. But what happens when we give? Look at verse 9. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons that they may eat it in the holy place, for it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statute. The bread provided for the needs of the priests. Again, those called. When the congregation brought the oil, it was the gifts. Of God that entrusted to them and they used those gifts for His glory. They brought the bread of presence, a picture of fellowship before the Lord. It produced a sweet aroma in God's presence. And it provided for the work of the ministry, the daily needs of the church. Sometimes people ask, and I'm just going to tell you all right now. When we give to, to Calvary Chapel, what happens? Where does it go? When we come like these guys and we give to the Lord, what happens to it? Let me just tell you real quickly several things. And again, you give out of faithfulness to God and obedience to God's word, not for for any man. First of all, it provides for very simple things like the facilities that we meet in. It provides for this building and the church office and there's ministry going on seven days a week in our church. It provides for Bibles and tapes that we give away. I've made a a statement and I'm going to stand by it until the Lord comes back. We will never charge for God's word in this church. We'll never charge for a Bible that someone needs. We'll give you one and we will never charge for tapes. And I don't care how many tapes you want, take them. How can we charge for the gospel? It's a free gift, amen? But we have to provide, and that happens when you faithfully give. It provides for the, the missionaries with Gospel for Asia that we support. It provides for the radio program. If you haven't heard it, we've been on over, we were on in San Jose for about a year. We've been on over here five days a week, for the last week and a half. And I got a phone call today asking for directions on how to get to our church. And what I love about it is, we're now on the radio five days a week, and we're reaching from, I was driving down to Magic Mountain with my kids, and you could hear it all the way down past King City. It goes all the way to South San Jose, Hollister, Gilroy, Morgan Hill, Monterey. You know, the whole area is hearing God's Word, and it's because you're faithful. Because you're faithful and obedient to give, that God uses those resources and then he now takes his word outside the, the wall, these four walls and it's reaching I don't know how many tens of thousands of people a week because you're faithful, reaching people all over this area. What else? What else does it do? What other things does God bless us with? The other thing that happens is it allows the staff that's here, people like myself, to study the Bible full time. And I cannot tell you how privileged I am. I, you know what? I'm blown away that I get to sit and study the Bible for 50 hours a week. And what a privilege. I can't believe. And you know what? If you guys weren't faithful to give, I wouldn't be able to do that. I'm also able and built to pray for you guys. And I'm praying for you every day. I have the, the little list of all the people in our church, and I go through it several times a week, and I just pray for you. My heart, You know why? Because I love you guys. And God's given me a supernatural love for you. And because you give, I'm able to do that. I'm able to counsel people and just be available 24 hours a day. I mean, that's my heart. That wouldn't happen if people weren't willing to give. Also provides for the needs of people in our church. There's people in our church that lose jobs. And people who don't have food sometimes. And there's people who have medical things going on. and, And you know what? As a church... Does the Lord want us to provide for them? Absolutely. And I want to say this right now. It breaks my heart, and I've been brought to weeping a couple times where I found out that people in our church didn't have any food, and I didn't find out about it, and it had been going on for a long time. Please, if, if, you know, don't let pride get in the way, please. And know that we're your family and we love you. Let me ask you a question. If my family needed food, would you give me some? Why would you not let us do that for you? Amen. Amen. And that's what the Lord wants. He wants us to minister to you and give to you and love you. And you guys being faithful to bring the oil and bring the bread allows us to minister to others. And you know what? Here's the good news. The the only thing that we invest in that will outlast this life. Amen? When we give it to the Lord, it's going to outlast this life. Now, we don't give so we can get. God's not a holy Santa Claus up in the sky, and we're not planting seeds of faith. You give him a 1,000, he'll give me 10,000 back. That's the wrong focus, and that's not God's highest, and that's not God's heart. Amen? Don't ever give because you feel guilted into it by a man, and don't ever give for any other reason than, I love the Lord, and I want to. Amen? Lord, I love you, and I want to give. And you know what? You guys are being faithful, and because you are, we're able to minister to a lot of people. And praise the Lord for that, because that's the way it ought to be. Now, the next portion here after the giving of the the holy oil and the giving of the bread we now kind of switch gears and we talk about protecting of his holy name and we're going to look at the penalty for blasphemy and i want to say something to you it breaks my heart what has happened with the name of our lord and our savior today it it just absolutely breaks my heart it breaks my heart how even in christian homes and christian families there's been compromise and i want you to see how god feels about it tonight and I hope that it will change your heart, and it will encourage you to have an even greater uh, reverence for the name of God. Look at verse 10. Now, the son of an Israelite woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the children of Israel, and this Israelite woman's son and a man from Israel fought each other in the camp. Now, right off the bat, it's interesting that the passage my dad shared, this, shared tonight was on being unequally yoked. And what do we see here in this verse? Trouble's coming, but guess where it starts? You have an Israelite woman married to an Egyptian man. And the problem is that they had left the bondage of Egypt. Amen? They left it behind. Egypt is a type of what? Type of sin or the world. Bondage is a type of sin. Egypt a type of the world. And they've been delivered from the world. And they were to flee from it and never to go back to it. And instead what had happened is some, there, there was a mixed multitude that left out of Egypt. And evidently you know, some of the... The men came with them, and this woman had married an Egyptian man. And now she has a child that's got a dad who's not an Israelite. An unbelieving father. Now, I do marriage, pre-marriage counseling all the time. And I can just tell you right now that, that people don't like to hear this. But I am just going to tell you straight up. If, if someone doesn't know God, they're dead in their trespasses and sins. And if you marry somebody like that, You're unequally yoked together, and your marriage is going to have major, major difficulty, especially with children. Mom gets up and tries to drag the kids off the church when God has called the Father to be the spiritual leader in the home. Now mom's trying to be mom and dad to her kids, and now her children start to look at dad and say, well, why do we have to go to church? Dad's going surfing. I want to go with dad. And before you know it, you've got a family that's torn in the middle. God has called the dad, the father, to be the spiritual leader in the home, to serve his wife and to, to be the one that sanctifies his home by the washing of the water of the Word of God, and you take a godly dad out of a family and you've got a mess. And the sad part is that today we've, we say, well, uh, but he's, he's so cute. But he's got a great job and he just loves me so much. Let me tell you something right now. Here's, here's the first ten minutes of Pastor Dave's pre-marriage counseling. I'll give it to all of you for free right now, okay? It's always free anyway. We don't charge for counseling. Three kinds of love. Aaron, phileo, and agape. Aaron love is where we get the word erotic and it's a selfish love. It's a love that says, what can you do for me? It's the kind of love that a newborn baby has for its mom. A newborn baby doesn't care that mom is tired. Newborn baby at three o'clock says, feed me! And screams until it gets fed, right? Because it's all about me. Now, phileo love is where we get the word Philadelphia and that's a brotherly love. And then the last form is called agape and agape love is a selfless love it's a love that values something outside of itself more than itself now the world can only have Aaron and Phileo the world cannot have agape love so if you marry somebody who does not have Jesus Christ you're marrying somebody that esteems themselves greater than you you're marrying somebody that cannot have selfless love a love that cannot come only from the Holy Spirit living within them And then we wonder why the divorce rate is so high, because when we get married, it's all about what can you do for me, and when someone cuter or someone richer comes along, you're done, because it's all about me. What can you do for me? And the youth group's in here tonight, so I'm just going to tell you guys, you know what? I don't believe in dating. Show it to me in the Bible. I believe in courtship to marriage. Because if you're dating when you're 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 years old, all you're doing is having trial marriages that all end in divorce. Amen? Because you break up at some point, right? And now you've had eight of these relationships break up, eight, right? And you've had eight divorces, and now you enter into a marriage where all the practice you've had has ended in divorce. Where do you think you're headed? Same place. And so, my kids aren't allowed, I just, I shut it down, it ain't happening, Okay? It ain't happening. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the reality is that we see here that this Israelite woman married this Egyptian man and no doubt thought, oh, it's not that big a deal. You know, I mean, he's a nice guy. And... Guess what? Consequences in her family. Take a look at verse uh, tw- 11. And the, Israelites, the Israelite woman's son, this is the, the, the woman with the, uh, a son with a hat, dad is an Egyptian and a mom is an Israelite, blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. Now, where do you think he might have learned that? Supposition on my part, but guess who the Egyptians served? False gods, pagan idols. This kid grew up in a house where dad was a pagan idol worshiper. And how much reverence for God did he learn from his father? Obviously very little. And now he's old enough and he gets into a battle and a fight, and in the middle of it, he curses the name of God. Now you have to remember that back then they did have reverence for the name of God. When they wrote His name, they would literally go through a cleansing ritual every time they wrote His name. They would go out and have to go through, be cleansed and bathed and do all the stuff to come back in and write His name. They had such reverence for His name, they would never pronounce His name. They would say the name because they didn't want to say His name. They wouldn't put the vowels. They put YHWH for Yahweh. They wouldn't put the vowels in there because they didn't feel they were worthy to, to write His name. And what's interesting is this man cursed his name. How was the response going to be? This young man who grew up in a home where obviously he was not taught to reverence God. Or if he was, he rebelled against his parents. Third commandment is, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. We're to reverence his name. The Bible says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. But look what it says here. And so they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelomith, the daughter of Dibri. Of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. Now, why did they put him in custody? Because he was not a full Israelite. He was part Jew, he was part Egyptian. They didn't know what to do with him. So they put him in custody and they sought the Lord. Hey guys, when in doubt, wait and seek God. Amen? When you're not sure what to do, the Holy Spirit is not the author of confusion. So if you don't know what to do, wait and seek the Lord. They didn't know what to do because he was half Israelite and half Egyptian. They didn't know if the laws of the Israelites really applied to this man. Do we hold him to the same standard? He didn't, he's not a full Israelite. We're going to seek the Lord. We want to determine His will. Again, the Holy Spirit is not the author of confusion. So they seek the Lord and look at verse 13 and 14. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take outside the camp him who has cursed, Then let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation, what does it say? Stone him. him. How does the Lord feel about his name being cursed? Not too good. He's the name above all names. He's Almighty God. He's the creator of the universe. He loves you so much he'd rather die than live without you. How does he feel about people cursing his name? Take him outside the city and stone him to death. Well, that's pretty harsh. I mean, whoa, come on. Come on, aren't you a God of love and grace and mercy? Yes, he is. And he is a God of mercy. But you know what? His mercy endures. But there is a time when judgment will come. Amen? There is a time when man will get what he asks for. Where man says, God, I don't need you. I don't want you. I don't need you. I don't want you. I don't need you. And eventually God says, okay, I'm going to give you what you want. I'm going to give you what you asked for. Every person in hell has to run over the cross of Christ to get there. They say, I don't need you, Lord. And they begin by, look at this, out of the overflowing of a man's heart, the Bible says what? His mouth speaks. You want to find out what's someone's, in someone's heart? Watch what comes out of their mouth. By the way, nothing slips out of your mouth. Oh, it slipped out. No, it didn't. That's in your heart. It's got to be here to get here. Amen? So it didn't slip out. Cursing is not a mouth problem, it's a heart problem. And this guy's heart was a mess. And he curses God. And the sad part is that he cursed God because there was no fear. Now I want to say this. This guy's going to face the same judgment that an Israelite man would face. And what God showed me is that we are all going to be treated the same. There is one law for all men, and there are no excuses. Amen? When confronted with sin, we can do one of three things. We can make excuses, we can accuse others, or we can repent. And in the world today, they make excuses for everything. The reason I shot those 47 people is I had a box of Twinkies. I'm not kidding, that's a fact. Twinkie defense. I mean, there's always a reason. The reason, you know, I wouldn't be this way, but I'm Irish. You know, I just, I'm born like that, you know. Hey, I got that Scottish thing, and I got my temper from, you know, and my dad was like that, and, and I got a dysfunctional family. You know, that's weak. Dysfunctional is a weak term. Here's what it is. You're from a sinful family, and we all are. Amen? Amen? Cain and Abel, first family, Cain killed his brother. Talk about dysfunctional. That was the first family. And people want to say, well, I wouldn't be this way if it weren't for my mom. Hey, You're going to stand before God on your own one day and you can't point to mom and you can't point to dad and you can't point to your boss and you can't point to anybody else. There are no excuses. The Lord loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you. Well, you know, I'm ADD. I'm dyslexic. My dad's an alcoholic. My my parents aren't saved. Okay. Some of those things are a bummer. But you know what? Does God know that about you? Does He love you anyway? Does he call you by the power of his Holy Spirit into his family? Yes. And now you must either reject him or respond to him. There's no excuses for rejecting Christ. He paid the price for you. He did it all. All he wants you to do is receive the gift. He holds it out. When I was a youth pastor, I used to hold out car keys or something to kids. And I'd say, this is so. He says, here, take it. And the gift of salvation is a gift that is offered to everyone. It's offered universally, but it must be accepted individually. Amen? He offers it to every single person. And now you have a choice to make. And you can't say, well, I would take the gift, but my dad's an alcoholic. I would take the gift, but I'm Irish. Got a bad temper. I would take... There's no reason, there's no excuse. And what he's saying very clearly here, okay, your dad's part Egyptian and your mom's part Israelite, but you are still held to the very same standard that every other man on this planet is going to be. The standard is Jesus Christ. And we've all fallen short. Amen? We're all sinners in desperate need of a Savior. We need Him more than anything else. When confronted with sin, what are you doing? Making excuses, accusing others, or repenting. And I want to say this, and I'm not capping on... But we have a lot of people show up at our church office because we are a church. And they want help, but they really don't. They want to continue living their sinful lifestyle, and they want us to prop it up. Could you just give me a couple hundred bucks? Well, let me think about that. The Bible says a man who does not work shall not eat. I'll buy you some groceries, and I'll help you, but I'm not going to prop up your sinful behavior. I'll give, we'll give, give $1,000 to help somebody who wants to serve God and who wants to get a job. Then I don't, before I'll give 50 cents to somebody who's in rebellion against Him. God wants to bring us to the end of ourselves. Sin has consequences. And everyone that comes in has 800 excuses. Bill and I are almost numbered them now. Oh, well, that's excuse like number 11. Yeah, someone stole my wallet, man. I'm just out of here from out of town and someone stole my wallet. If I hear that one more time, Dude, we got all kinds of pickpockets in this town, evidently. And the only pick on homeless people, evidently. That's the way it works. But the reality is that there's always this excuse for why I'm living the way I'm living. God loves you, but you know what? God desires that you would step toward Him. He, he died for you. He did it all. He just wants you to say, yes, Lord. That's it. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. And also, every man is going to pay the consequences of their sin if they don't allow Jesus Christ to do it. Look at the next two verses. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel. Whoever curses his God shall what? Bear his sin. So somebody pays for your sin. Either you do, or you let the Lord do it for you. There's nothing in between. Either I pay for it. Buddha can't pay for your sin. Amen? He's got, you know, he needs to go on a diet and quit eating them oranges that he's got in his lap, all right? Buddha's dead. We can go dig up his bones. He didn't die on the cross. He's not God. He's not the creator of the universe. He can't help you. All right? Jesus Christ did. He paid the price. You have, to, you have to make a decision about him. And it says, Whoever curses God shall bear his sin. And whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who was born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. Now I thought about having these two verses printed on a card and carrying them around in my pocket, and every time I heard someone curse God, hand it to them, but i probably get punched more than anything else. The reality is that, let me just say this to us as Christians, blasphemy produces death. It produces death in those who blaspheme God, but also believe that it produces death to the name of God in a sense, to those who hear it. If you grew up in a home or you're around people that do nothing but use God's name, God's name is an explicative for when you hit your thumb with a hammer. God's last name does not start with a D. Amen? That's not God. That's not the God we serve. Don't curse Him like that. And people take His name in vain, and what happens is people hear it over and over and over and over, and then what do they think? Oh man, that's that's a name that you use when you're angry. That's a name that you use when you're bitter. That's a name that you use when you need to make excuses for why your life's a mess. It's not someone you call on when you're at the depths of despair. We need to magnify His name. So, Pastor Day's opinion. How in the world can we take God's money and go sit and watch a movie where they curse His name? Amen? You want a tip? Screenit.com. You go on there; it'll show you if there's cursing in the movie. Before any movie, I, I, you know what? Let me just tell you, I love the movies. I love to get the biggest, you know, mondo thing of popcorn they got, and the extra large coke with a lot of ice, and put all the grease on there. And I want to sit in, and I like going to the movies. The problem is, I don't get to go to very many, because I go to screen it, and if they say Jesus in there and they're not worshiping him, I'm not going. If they say, take God's name in vain in any way, shape, or form, I'm not going. How can I go? Look at this verse says. How does God feel about his name being cursed? He hates it. It breaks his heart. You know what? If there was a movie and they were cursing my earthly father, I certainly wouldn't go see that. Amen? If they're mocking my dad and cursing him, I wouldn't. Why in the world would I go to a movie where they do it with my heavenly father? Pastor Dave's opinion, oh, Pastor Dave, I'm not getting, the reality is, look at the text. You know what, if all Christians would say, dude, you curse God, I ain't going to your movies. Maybe somebody would stop cursing him. Maybe they'd say, you know what, we do that, none of the Christians are going to come. There it is. Better stop. Don't take his name in vain. And they take his name in vain and they curse his name. They have no reverence for his name. They don't fear his name. People won't turn to him because they think that his name is nothing more than a cuss word. And it breaks God's heart. He's being cursed on TV, in the movies, in schools, at our workplace, on the street. God doesn't take it lightly and neither should you and I. They stoned him. Now, this means they took him outside of the city and the people that heard him cuss put their hand on their head to say, we testify that we heard him. Then they picked up rocks. And I don't mean pebbles. I mean rocks. And they threw rocks at him until he died. And God told him to do it. How does God feel about his name being cursed? Third commandment. I shall not take the name Lord thy God in vain. We're almost done. Verse 17. Whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Oh man, Santa Cruz doesn't like that, this liberal county here. But here's the reality. Let's read on. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, animal for animal. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor, as he has done, so shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has caused disfigurement of a man, so shall it be done to him. Now these verses are not preaching revenge. They're preaching restraint. What they're saying is that the response to the crime is equal to the crime. If a man breaks someone's leg, you don't put him to death. It's eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It's not two eyes for an eye, all his teeth for a tooth, but if you put a man to death, the Bible says you will die. Now, notice that the vengeance is not taken out by the victim. It doesn't say, they killed your husband, so now you take him outside the city gate, your whole family, and beat him till he dies. That's not what it says. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And the Lord puts the congregation together and says, okay, you are to bring the vengeance upon them. Now, why, why do you think the Lord would do this? Because the Lord values life. And the world today says that it doesn't work as a, a deterrent by putting people to death. Well, guess what? The Bible says it does. So who do you think's right? Amen? God says it does. It seems to be working out just, you know, having people go to jail for six years when they kill somebody. That seems to be working out really well for us. Right? Do people repeat their crime? Yeah. Now, does God love them and can God save somebody who's, who's killed? Absolutely. But sin has consequences. And if you think the consequence for murder is heavy duty, try rejecting Jesus Christ. It's not just death here and now physically, it's eternal separation from Him. And so the Lord is making it very clear here that you blaspheme my name, you deny me as Savior, it's going to result in death. And if you kill another man, it's going to result in death. And sin has consequences. Today, sin has excuses. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. I've got this disorder. I've got this, it's every kind of disorder under the sun. In the church today, well, the demon of so-and-so, oh, stop the demon. devil can't make you do anything. Did you know that? You choose to do things. The devil can tempt you, but you make a choice. Flip Wilson was wrong when he said, devil made me do it, right? devil can't make you do anything. You choose to sin. Every time you sin, you don't trip into sin, you don't fault, you sin. You choose it. Amen? How many of you know that's true? How many of you get warned before you sin? Don't do it. Right? Don't do it, don't do it. And you just keep going, right? And it gets louder. you you just, I'm doing it, right? And then as soon as you do it, if you're walking close to the Lord, what happens? Holy Spirit head slap. Conviction of the Holy Spirit. And you know what? The sign of spiritual maturity is the sign of how long it is between the time you sin and the time you repent. Amen? The closer and closer that gets the closer you're walking with the Lord. I don't want to be separated from Him because of my sin. How about you? Amen? And so we see here that sin has consequences. Let's finish up verse 21. Whoever kills an animal shall restore it. Whoever kills a man shall be put to death. Again, for the people here in Santa Cruz, God loves animals. The Bible says a righteous man cares for his animal, but animals are not equal to people. Amen? Be a hero, save a whale, save a baby, go to jail. Ever heard that before? People love whales more than babies. The Bible says in the end times, men will call good evil and evil good, and that's what we've done. When you start elevating a whale above a baby, you're messed up. You you are totally messed up. Slaughtering millions of babies and people will spend millions of dollars to save some whale that came up on a beach that God said it's time for him anyway. Amen? Right? Right? But we'll slaughter babies and not think anything of it. It's a form of birth control. Millions of babies killed. And we don't get it anymore. We've missed it. And it says right here, look, if he kills an animal, then you replace it. Give him a new animal. Because animals are not as important as people. A righteous man cares for his animal. We don't abuse our animals, but they don't, they're not equal to people. And neither are trees, by the way. Amen? Trees are not equal with people. Welcome to Santa Cruz. But that's reality. Oh, this a, this tree, Mother Earth? No, first, there's no Mother Earth. Okay. Well, my parents had a tree out in front of their house, and they were gonna, I, I remember people. Oh, I can't believe you're cutting down that tree! It's a tree. It's a tree. Let it go. All right? People are dying and going to hell without Jesus, and people are chaining themselves to trees. I don't get it. Verse 22. You shall have the same law for the stranger and one for your own country, for I am the Lord your God. So guess what? God's law applies to everybody. It applies to the people in India, to the people in Australia, to the people in Canada, to the people in you know, China, and the people in the United States. It applies to the poor people. It applies to the rich people. It applies to you no matter what color your skin is. It applies to you no matter what language you speak. It applies to everyone. Because God created them all in His image, and He loves them. Amen? And He died for all of them. When I was a little kid, we used to sing sing that song, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, right? Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight. The Lord loves us all. And He died for us all. But we're all going to be accountable to Him. Well, I think that Buddha is the God for this continent, and I think that Muhammad is the God. That doesn't work. Amen? I'm not going to go into apologetics right now. I'll let Joe Shoup talk to you about that later. But verse 23. Then Moses spoke to the children of Israel and they took outside the camp who had cursed and stoned him with stones so the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. Does this bother you at all that God commanded this guy be stoned? Does it bother you at all? Sin has consequences, you guys. God didn't stone this man. This man chose to be stoned. By cursing God. By saying, Lord, I don't need you. Lord, you're a cuss word to me. You're not my Savior. We can call on his name for salvation and eternal life and adoption into his family. Or we can blaspheme his name unto death. What does the name of Jesus mean to you? Is it the name of, of all names? Is he, is he your best friend? Are you crying out to him in times of difficulty? Or does, name, does his name come off your lips when you hit your thumb with a hammer? Who is he? blasphemer first die. The first person to die under the law of Moses was this blasphemer. How did he die? He was stoned. How did the first person who died for the gospel die? Who was it? We're going to see it in the book of Acts in the next couple weeks. Isn't it interesting that they were both died by stoning? But I'll tell you what. Their destinations were a lot different, weren't they? One died for cursing the name of Christ, and one died for making a stand for his name. Amen? So as Christians, we're going to face persecution sometimes. But may we not be persecuted for our indifference to God, but may we be persecuted for making a stand for Him. So in closing, special responsibilities of His people. One, preparing of the holy oil, empowered by the Spirit, using the gifts that God's given you. Everybody in this room has gifts God wants to use you. Providing the holy bread. The bread is a picture of fellowship, of being in His presence, the sweet aroma of prayer, and providing the daily needs of the body. And then lastly, protecting His holy name. Never cursing, but praising His name. Bringing glory to His name by walking in obedience to the the Holy Spirit and being a godly witness. By the way, if you're listening to music that curses our Savior's name, stop it. Amen? It's weak. Well, I like the beat. Yeah, they're cursing my Savior left and right, but I really like the beat. You know what? I would be concerned about where you're at with the Lord if you can listen to that and not be grieved. We need to. You know what? Let me tell you something. You can either have music that draws you into His presence and causes you to praise Him, or you can listen to people curse Him. Why did God create music? Worship. To glorify Him. No other reason. Who is the angel of worship in heaven? Satan. So who wants to be worshiped? Satan. And so, when you're popping a CD in your CD player, who's getting glorified? Put it in there and, and have it draw you into the presence of God. So, next week we'll be looking at the years of refreshing, uh, of refreshing, excuse me, not refreshing. We don't want to do that. But the years of refreshing, okay? Read that for next week. Read Acts 6 for Sunday. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You and we praise You, Lord, for Your Word. And we thank You, Lord, that You allow us after you save us, to take an active part by being involved in ministry, Lord, by taking the gifts that you give us and allowing us to use them for your glory, by taking the, the possessions that you've given us and allowing us to give a portion of them back to you that you would use them for your glory, for taking the time that you've given us and allowing us to give you back some of that time. Lord, I just pray, Father, that we would be like was commanded here in this text, that we would be the ones who bring that oil and bring the bread, Lord, and we would draw near to your presence and, and be in fellowship with you. And then, Father, I just pray that you would allow us to just begin to really have a reverence for your name like never before, that we would esteem it and magnify it, that, Lord, we would use it in a way that would glorify and honor you, not bring harm to your name, not tear down your name, not blaspheme your name. Lord, I pray that we would be convicted, Lord, of if we have things that entertain us that curse your name. That, Father, we would make a stand for you, Lord, because we love you. Lord, I just thank you and praise you for each person who's here. And just help us, Father God, to walk in the fullness of your spirit. Because, Lord, everything we've talked about tonight is impossible if we try to do it ourselves. Apart from you, we can do nothing. But we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So, Father, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said... Let's stand and close a worship song.